Um, yeah, so my name's Peter and I have the opportunity of speaking this morning. And um, just for the record, I'm not taking over from Bill. Uh, you know, this, is, uh, this is not my day job, um, but we'll pray that God uh, does a work in all of us today. <clears throat> I was going to start um, today's message with a, a story about um, a man who ran over a cat in Glasgow. It's a Billy Connolly story. And then, as I was thinking about it and the amount of sanitising I would have to do to make it possible, to, I decided, no, I'm going to let that one go. Um, <clears throat> so I came up with um, another uh, example from a guy called Simon Sinek. He's an acclaimed author and um, public speaker. He's in demand by many corporate organisations and um, he's written a book called... Um, the Infinite Game. So if you're into business leadership, The Infinite Game's an interesting uh, book to read. Anyway, he tells the story of um, having to be involved in, in a, um, a corporate summit for two organisations who are direct competitors with each other. One was Microsoft and the other was Apple. So, and these two summits were happening within a week of each other. Oh, sorry, within a month of each other. So the first one was the Microsoft one, and he went to that um, uh, leadership summit of their corporate executives, and he found that um, the prime motivator for uh, Microsoft was looking at Apple products and how they could make them better. They always wanted to make a better version of an Apple product. In contrast, when he went to the Apple summit, he found that the Apple executives were all about innovation, finding needs that people had and finding uh, ways to actually um, produce products that would appeal to people and be innovative. Um, anyway, after, he went, uh, the, after Simon went to the Microsoft conference, he was given a, a gift and the gift that he was given was a Microsoft Zune. I'm sure nobody's ever heard of a Microsoft Zune, but it was Microsoft's version of the iPod. Not the iPad, the iPod. Um, even you young people probably don't even know what an iPod is. But anyway, it was, it was a way of um, delivering portable music. So anyway, <clears throat> he was given this gift and he kept it with him. And when he went to the Apple summit, on the way back from the summit, he was in the car with one of the executives there and he thought he'd just stir him up a little bit. So he pulls out the Zune and he says to the, to the, the Apple guy, you know the Zune's much better than the iPod. It's got all these extra features. Um, iPod's not really that good. This is much better. And the executive turned to him and said, no doubt, you're probably right. And that was the end of the conversation. Within a year, Apple introduced the first iPhone, which made the Zune and the iPod completely redundant. So um, you could understand why the corporate executive didn't want to get into that conversation. We'll get to that a little bit later and we'll re revisit that. Um, I've titled today's message God's not fair. 
Might be on the slide there, yeah. As Christians, we're not allowed to say that, are we? God's not fair. But I suspect that almost all of us have experienced something in our lives where those thoughts about God has entered our mind. Why did God bless us with a pregnancy only to take our baby away as soon as it was born? Or we've been praying desperately for a baby and God hasn't blessed us with one. And there's so many women who are getting pregnant who don't want to have babies. God was telling me to take a new job, but it's turned out to be a disaster. My dad just retired and he really wanted to give his twilight years to ministry work. And now God took him away before he could even start. Our young child's belly a journey of overcoming cancer. We really believed that God had brought us together, but now our marriage is totally broken down. Why does God allow a tyrant like Vladimir Putin to decimate another country? I'm sure one of these conversations resonates with you or some version of that. These are heart-wrenching experiences that cut to the core and leave us wondering about the fairness and justice of God. What got me going down this track was the story of Job. Even when I was a kid, it just didn't seem right that Job had to go through all just so that God could prove an experiment with Satan. <coughs> Pastor Bill, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about testing and temptation and gave examples of Abraham with Isaac, Daniel in the lion's den and Job. I'm okay with Abraham and Isaac because Isaac was rescued at the, at the critical moment. I'm okay with Daniel in the lion's den because God protected Daniel from the lions. But what about Job? He went through so much suffering. Um, doesn't seem to work the same way, does it? Let's just read a couple of passages in the book of Job to refresh our memories about what happened to him. And Philip is going to lead us with that. Okay, so I'm reading from Job chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, Ah, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And now we too. Um, and starting reading there from verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter, day of, latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Thanks, Phil. So Satan has this um, agreement with God and basically takes all of his property, all his livestock, all his possession. He even loses his health and he's inflicted with unbearable sores which torment him day and night. The only person who's left is his wife. And Satan even uses her in a terrible way. He gets his wife to say to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Which is exactly what Satan was trying to get done. So he had one dear, dearest person in his family left and he even used her to try and get at Job. Yeah. Interestingly... Job's wife is not mentioned when God returns all of Job's possessions and gives him ten more children. Don't know why that is. Don't know what happened to his wife. I'm not sure that there's a real explanation for that. Anyway, why does God allow this incredible suffering and at what cost to his faithful servant, Job? Then his friends come to visit him. And they seem what have to be endless discussions around the cause of Job's calamity, suggesting that Job must have done something really bad and God is now punishing him. In fact, a huge slab of the book of Job is just that dialogue between these three friends and, um, and Job's responses. By the way, we often dismiss those friends as legalistic and not caring about Job. But it's actually quite long. 
Let's just have a look and see what it says in Job chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Napathite. They made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognise him, and they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. It actually goes a little bit further and says that they, um, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Can you imagine being... Uh, going to visit a friend and weeping, tearing your clothes and just in sympathy for the person. I don't think any of us are up for that. So these were actually people who cared about Job, but they're trying to figure out why, why was this happening. Finally, Job, there's this great um, dialogue that goes backwards and forwards and basically, finally, Job can't take it any longer. He's, he's had enough. And you read those chapters, it just goes on and on about different um, things that each of his friends were saying and how Job refutes that. And he gets tired of all of that. And in the end, he says, um, he demands that God show up. He doesn't curse God, but he just said, you need to show up, God. He comes with a new contention that maybe God's not punishing him for his past sins, but that he's... Uh, warning him to avoid future sin. He condemns the other friends and shows a degree of empathy for Job's responses to the other friends. Job listens to Elihu and he actually doesn't offer a response. Um, he's, he's tired of it and the dialogue ends there. Suddenly, though, God shows up in a whirlwind and begins to unpack Job's view of God's justice. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. Yes, virtual imaging was around before the internet. And during the tour, God shows Job the vastness of the universe, its origins, its weather patterns, as well as the intricacies of how things work, how animals behave, how they give birth. Then to cap it all off, God displays two huge beasts, behemoth and Leviathan. They're on the sh Behemoth in the bottom right and Leviathan in the top left. Half of chapter 40 is used to describe Behemoth and all of chapter 41 to describe Leviathan. Are these real creatures or mythical beasts? There's lots of theories around this from identifying Behemoth as a hippo and Leviathan as a crocodile right through to describing them as creatures from the dinosaur age. I'm sorry, but answering that question is above my pay grade. <laughs> so I'm not going to go there. However, it doesn't really matter for today's message because it's just another way that God shows Job the expanse of God's knowledge, the universe, and um, how there's other things in the world that are beyond Job's perception and understanding.
Job begins to understand that the almighty nature of God, whose justice is incomparable to Job's level of understanding, uh, is explained to Job why all these bad things happen to him. So if we reflect back on Simon Sinek's story, the Apple executive responded in an obscure way that Simon didn't understand because the executive had more knowledge than he had. He had a wider perspective that knew that similarly God shows Job that measuring God's justice by Job's knowledge and perspective is completely flawed. The book of Job concludes by God restoring Job with his health, a new family, even more animals and wealth than before. Again, God doesn't explain why he does this. He doesn't say it's a reward for passing the... So what does it teach us about God's justice? There's three books in the Bible, the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job, that kind of tackle this question. Each of the three books provides a different perspective of God's justice and provides some insights on how we are to live life well. Proverbs, this book provides a commentary that if you do good, you'll be rewarded, and if you're foolish and do bad things, you'll be punished. The book does this by describing a multitude of short examples, teaching us good from bad. It concludes that following the path of wisdom will lead to a successful life. Just an example, Proverbs 11, 1 to 5. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. So it's just many comparisons of do good and good things will happen, do bad or foolish things and bad things happen. Then we get to Ecclesiastes, which reminds us that life's not always like that. We hear a commentary that we're firstly just a speck in the time, cosmic time scale, and secondly, just like the animals, we're all going to die, whether we're rich or poor, good or bad, believing God or not. Thirdly, that there's a random nature in events that happen, and success does not always go to the wise, brilliance to the educated, and the prize to the best. We learn that life is confusing and unpredictable. Let's have a look at Ecclesiastes 9, 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And then there's Job. Job 42, 1 to 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. 
which I did not know. We're reminded that we are to humbly trust in an almighty God whose justice cannot be explained. So in summary, these books give us some insight into the wisdom of God. First one, it's good to do good because these are God's life principles. That's the Proverbs part of it. Life can be random and confusing, but God's still in charge. Ecclesiastes. We need to humbly trust in a God whose perspective is infinitely wider than our own. That's Job. Here's some truths that come out of that. God's justice comes from a perspective that's much wider than our own. His ways are not our ways. God allows us to question and cry out to him, just as Job did. God does not always explain to us why things happen. God knows stuff that we don't know. God asks me only to trust him. God will not let me fall. God loves me more than I will ever know. So what do we do with our initial question at the start of the message? How can God be fair and righteous God if he allows the suffering we see in the world and in our own personal lives. As we work our way through these thoughts, we progressively change to from why thoughts to even though thoughts. Instead of why am I going through this terrible cancer to even though I'm going through this cancer, From why did my dad die at such an early age? From why do I have such a terrible job to even though I have this job? Even though I'm going through these things, yet I know that I can entrust in a God who knows infinitely more than me. Who loves me so much that he sacrificed his son for me and will stand with me, hold me up when I'm proud to fall, who places people in my pathway to strengthen and encourage me. That's the kind of God we have. Not a God who stands by and lets bad things happen to us, but a God who carries us through the most difficult times of our lives. Just a few verses to cling to in these times of trouble. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. From 1 Peter, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. From Psalm 55, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So finally, is God fair? No, God's not fair. 
He doesn't deal with us according to our actions. He allows us to mess up and continually forgives and wipes our slate clean. He knows we're going to let him down again and he still stands willing to forgive. He continues to love us even though mostly we're quite unlovable. He's done everything he can to the point of allowing his son to die so that we can have salvation. No, that doesn't sound like a fair God, but that's the kind of God we have. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are that God, that God who knows so much more than we will ever know, that has our best at heart always. And Lord, it's so hard just to put our trust in you at times, but this morning we just want to lift ourselves up before you, Lord, and, and uh, recognise that you are the God who cares for us, who loves us more than we would ever know, and that thank you, Lord, thank you that uh, you care for us, that you love us, and that you're always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.